But William was having a really hard time sitting on his square. And I said, I'm out. A four-year-old? Never, ever, ever. I don't want him ever sitting on a square. Not ever. And if that's what you think is the right way to teach, I'm out. But then they... then. Und der hat halt nachts gezockt. Wo es noch gruseliger ist. Dumm von ihm. Ja. Und Tag ist nicht so schön. Aber nachts. Und, und, wenn, und wenn schon seine Freunde oder so nicht dabei sind, zum Beispiel. Dann scheißt man sich ein. Ist so. Ja, so richtig schrecklich ist nicht. Nice, thank you so much, Mark. You're on my show and I'm a huge fan of yours. And I would love to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself because I think you are way better in this than me. Very well. Ah, uh, you're, you're, you're too kind. <laughs> Look, I, I'm excited to be here. I'm uh, really excited that you reached out and, and look forward to, to the conversation. So, um, you know, by, just by way of background, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a left coaster. I grew up in, in Seattle. Um, And always thought I would stay there, but then uh, we moved around a lot. My dad, I would say, was one step removed from the military. He worked for a firm called uh, Arthur Anderson before it became Anderson Consulting and, and Accenture. And um, they moved us around a lot, so I went to three high schools. I pretty much hated my parents for that, but I've forgiven them because it actually taught me, Alex, it taught me how to meet people. I mean, imagine this. Imagine I grew up. I had hair down to my shoulders. I wore bell-bottom pants. I moved across country to Weston, Connecticut. I had to cut my hair short and wear corduroys and be very preppy. Didn't feel right. And then in the middle of senior year, they moved to Houston, Texas. And I had to get cowboy boots and a hat and go to the rodeo. And I just learned how to be a chameleon. Now, I also got a great gift from my mom. My mom, her nickname is Yak Yak Face. She can talk to anyone, anywhere, anytime about anything. And I got a little bit of that. So I, I talk too much and, and I tend to, to ramble on. But, but it, I, I look back on that time of what I learned most from the education was the people, the relationships, how to fit in, how to adapt, how to move on, how to grow. So that, so that, was, that was good. Again, didn't like it at the time, angsty teenager. Um, Then, uh, you know, my parents were not college people, so I had a great guidance counselor. She gave me a list of schools. I went down the list, went, hmm, Harvard, Yale, no, not going there. Uh, Carnegie Mellon, never heard of it. Emory, don't know where it is. And I just picked some schools like, you know, Notre Dame and UVA and, and uh, Wash U that I had heard of. Although I did think, honestly, that Wash U was the University of Washington where I grew up. I didn't even know there was another school with the same name. Um, so I applied and, and I got in and I went to Notre Dame and loved it. And you can see the big fighting Irish picture and I'm all in. But I, I went to be an architect because, and again, you're too young to, to remember, but I, there was a show when I was growing up called The Brady Bunch about a guy and a gal getting together. Each had three kids and they merged families. And Mr. Brady was an architect on this television show that I've spent way too much time watching television. You know, people complain, oh, people are always staring at their screens. We stared at screens too. They were oh, just so television screens instead so of phone screens. Yeah. And, and I rotted my brain with Gilligan's Island and the Brady Bunch. And um, by the way, anytime someone tells you that something rots your brain, you should buy a lot of it. 
like as an investment because it'll become a really big deal. Um, so I wanted to be an architect, but turned out I wasn't very good at it. So I tried engineering, hated that. And I actually was dating uh, a girl and she said, you know, why don't you do what you like? like? Well, there's a novel concept. Don't do what mom and dad like, do what I like. Well, what do I like? I like science. So I tried science and I loved it. And uh, I thought I wanted to be a doctor, but um, they started giving me the, the med school apps. And they said, to me, why do you want to be a doctor? I'm like, well, because I had worked in the emergency department at this hospital in, in Seattle. And I worked with a bunch of emergency room docs and they worked eight 24 hour shifts a month. So they had you know 22 days off a month and they drove Porsches. I'm like, what a great life. I'm like, that's a horrible answer. Uh, you know, it wasn't very altruistic. So I, I ditched that and I went to business school. So I went to business school, took a job. And then my life's just a series of happy accidents. The guy who's doing investing retired. So I took over. Then I got a job back at my alma mater at, at Notre Dame. Then I came down here to North Carolina and ran the endowment here. And, and then I started a little company uh, 20 years ago in asset management. And then 10 years ago, got introduced to crypto and I've gone down that rabbit hole ever since. And so that's the shortest version I can do. I don't do short very well. That's perfect. Yeah, that's nice because um, when I discovered you, I mean, I stumbled upon you on Twitter. Uh, I saw you as a typical Bitcoiner, like uh, super deep into the space and you went down the rabbit hole quite uh, some time, I could tell. And then I found out, oh, he's from the fiat world. So, you know, you just know what you're talking about. And that makes it even more um, reliable what you are saying about Bitcoin. And I just love that. Um, yes. And recently I discovered that you are also interested in alternative education. Oh, and, my God. Education yeah. is my jam, Alex. And it's... I come by it naturally um, in the sense that uh, I had a, a life-changing experience. When I, when I first moved down here to North Carolina, they take all the newbies at the university. So I was working at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and they take all the newbies who are from other places, and they put you on a bus, and they send you out to learn about North Carolina for a week. And so you, you know, went to a tobacco farm. And you know, Tobacco, it's like, oh, it's bad for you. Why do farmers grow tobacco? And this tobacco farmer says to us very casually, well, if I grow an acre of tobacco, I make $5,000. If I grow an acre of soybeans, I make $200. What would you do? Right? No, that, that's not right. I, I, yeah, I would grow tobacco. Yeah, 5,000 versus 200. If it was 400 versus 200, yeah, I'd do the right thing and grow soybeans. But no, 5,000, yeah, I'd grow tobacco. So it was just first aha moment. But the big, the life changer was we went to a youth prison. Okay. Very heart wrenching. You know, you're seeing these children behind bars telling their stories. And the warden, who was this amazing woman, brought us in. And imagine that being the warden of a youth prison as, as, a, as a mom. Um, and but she was this amazing woman. And Uh, long story short, she said, what's the number one reason people go to prison? And we're all like, oh, that's easy. Poverty. Nope. Oh, single child household. I mean, single parent household. Nope. Uh, drugs. Nope. Uh, and she let us go for like 10 minutes. Nope, 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 nope. She says, give up. I'm like, okay, yeah, I give up. And she says, okay, the score 
on the second grade reading test. <laughs> and you're like, wow. And she says, if you score below a certain level, you will fall behind, you'll be ostracized, you'll drop out, you go to prison. She says, we build prisons based on the scores, state by state, of second grade reading test. And it became my mission because we can fix that. We can impact reading, right? Head Start programs, reading to your kid at home. You know, I'm a big believer 85% of success in school comes from what you do at the house. So all this good stuff, but it became my thing. So when I started Morgan Creek, I also set up a foundation and 10% of our profits go to the Morgan Creek Foundation and we support early childhood education. So made a bunch of investments in those uh, types of organizations over the years. And I've you know, learned a lot and, and I've seen a lot of different models. And, and I also had another realization, right, as, as you do. Um, problem with Americans, right? We're, we're young. It's not our fault. We're just young. I, I just got back. I was in Spain and Portugal for two weeks. And the history is just so amazing. And I learned all this amazing stuff. And But you come back and, and Americans are just, we're, we're just young. And what we don't realize is the stories that we tell ourselves are kind of the histories written by the winners problem. And so we have the school system in America. And Everyone says, well, it's failing. It's failing. We, we need to fix it. I'm like, well, no, it's doing exactly what it was designed to do. No, it, no, it's not. It's failing. I'm like, no, it's, it's doing exactly, precisely what you designed it to do. Well, what's that? To create factory workers. It was created to take all the vision and, and enthusiasm and, and delight out of kids and make them rule followers, don't question authority, do your job, and assemble plastic parts at, at the plane factory. Ooh, wait a second, that's not what we need for the knowledge economy. We need problem solving, we need you know uh, collaboration skills, we need all these other things. That's not what we teach. And I'll, I'll tell one little anecdote that so you and I talked before we, we started recording. I have a unique family. So I have two older kids, 34 and 32, and then a caboose who's 12. And that's a big gap, right? 20 years. So I joke, you know, we're a good Catholic family. We had nine. We just skipped the middle six. So we have three. But um, when we had the first two, we sent them to good Catholic schools and then public high schools. And they had a decent experience. They went on to Notre Dame where we went and everybody's happy. The, the caboose comes along. We're like, well, you know, maybe we should check out these private schools. You know, we've heard they're good and you got to pay a lot of money. So they must be good. So we go to the evaluation day. Alex, this, this is, it makes me angry to think about. So this is a six hour process for a four-year-old. Six hours, right? We come back and they debrief us. I'm like, well, you know, we, we noticed some behaviors in Will. And like, well, okay, what, what kind of behaviors? Well, you know, William was having a really hard time sitting on his square. And I said, I'm out. 
A four-year-old? Never, ever, ever. I don't want him ever sitting on a square. Not ever. And if that's what you think is the right way to teach, I'm out. But then they, then they doubled down and they said, okay, what else? Oh, you know, William was, was walking around the classroom, picking up things and looking at them. I'm like, oh my God, he's curious. Really? You think that's bad? So out. And this is a very expensive, very well thought of school here in, in Durham. No, I mean, it's a joke. I mean, and what are you going to produce telling kids to sit on squares and do what they're told? You're going to produce non-critical thinkers, non, you know, people who can't challenge authority. People can't think outside the box. Anyway, so that that's a, a series of events that led me to, to be very supportive of uh, people who, who just take a different, different tack, people like yourself. And, and I, I have to really applaud you because I've thought about it, but I didn't have the courage to do it. I didn't have the courage to actually do what a friend of mine did, took his kids and they got on a sailboat and they went around the world for a year. They learned more in that year than they'll learn in all their school years. And I've talked about doing that. And we did like we did this two week vacation. and That was great. And he learned a lot, but it's not the same. So I applaud people like yourself who 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 do it. Thank you so much. But to be honest, I didn't had uh, no other chance but doing it because we've been looking at 34 schools in Berlin. I really wanted it to to. I, I wanted to stay in Berlin because it would have been so much easier for me as yeah. a single oh, mom yeah. in my surrounding. Yeah. But they were all so shitty. And my son, like even the best democratic schools, he was like, this is slavery. I can't do it. I don't feel fine. I don't want to stay here all alone the whole day. And so I couldn't do it because he didn't felt it. And that just broke my heart to think about leaving him somewhere and Nah, for what? And Berlin is so ugly. It's so cold. And no, <laughs> I just couldn't do it. So I just followed my heart and my son's heart, to be honest. And uh, that might, at that time, it, it was a stupid decision, I need to say, because I didn't have no money and I, I was so inexperienced. And I just went like, okay, let's go to the jungle. I don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> and well, look, I mean, it, it, look, those types of decisions, courageous decisions, life-changing decisions, they're easy to, to throw stones at from the, from the lens of us, right? You know, I work in a you know, nice office and I have all the trappings of, of materialism and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, um, I actually don't, don't believe in a lot of it. I, I believe in, in the education you get from relationships uh, the education you get from experiences. I'm a, big, I'm a big believer in experiential learning. One of the things that my wife and I did is we set up a scholarship at, at Notre Dame. And, and again, we, we, we did what, what Picasso said. You know, we, we went to the Picasso Museum and this amazing artist. And he said, you know, good artists borrow, great artists steal. And, and I love that quote because it's, it's just true, right? I mean, why reinvent something that you know already works? So uh, there's a program here at North Carolina called the Moorhead Kane Scholars. It used to be the Moorhead Scholars. And they copied 
the Rhodes scholars. Because if you think about the great scholars of our day, they are Rhodes scholars. Well, why is that? Well, they have a really great process of identifying really talented people, people who are passionate about a certain thing and they've gone out and done it. They didn't just sit in class and listen to other people talk at them. And so Moorhead created this, this similar program in North Carolina and I hired one and he was amazing. I mean, he's truly amazing. And then I hired a second one and he was truly amazing. And then I hired a third one and she was amazing. I'm like, there's a trend here, right? So when I dug into it, what it was, was they give the scholarship not on need, but on merit. Okay. So it's based on merit, like, you know, skills and, but not just academic merit. There are four criteria and the whole picture is you want well-rounded, curious people who, who can have vision and, and ultimately become great leaders. But there's an element in the program, in the summers, you do experiential learning. So we replicated the program at, at Notre Dame and, and we've had this amazing thing. We just had our 10th graduating class uh, this year and, and I'll, you know, humble brag, we've had four of the last 10 valedictorians for the school. Right. Nice. Cause your kids are amazing. I mean, I'm just glad I don't have to compete with them because they're, they're amazing, but they they don't become valedictorian just because they have good grades. They have good grades, but it's because they've started things. They've built things. They've gone to, you know, West Africa and, and built a school. They, and we have this kid, this amazing, this amazing story. I mean, I say kid, he's a young man. Um, but he's like my kid. I mean, I, I feel like he's, he's my child because I'm so proud of him. Um, he grew up in refugee camps. His family fled Rwanda to Burundi and because he found his brother murdered, right? Head chopped off. Imagine finding your sibling, you know, head chopped off. Family fled. He had three years of formal education, the equivalent of three years in these refugee camps, running around um, trying to flee. Long story short, he scores the highest in the country on the exams. So there's a, a program in South Africa in Johannesburg called African Leadership Academy, ALA. And they identified this guy, brought him there. And what they do is they do 13th year and a gap year. And then they try to place you in, in colleges around the world, in the US and the UK. And I interviewed this kid and he was just amazing. I'm like, okay, you're coming. So he comes and his freshman year, the graduate programs are competing for him as a freshman to come into their graduate programs because he's just that talented. But he doesn't go on to become a PhD or an investment banker. He goes back to Rwanda and starts a school. And I just, I just love that, that there are those types of people out there. And he, he is as educated as anyone in the world, but he didn't sit on a square and listen to people preach at him. Anyway, I digress. That is really nice, definitely. Uh, that reminds me a bit of someone told me today he never hires someone who's unlucky. He's uh, only hiring people who call themselves lucky. And I got well, that. Lucky is is amazing. I'm a big I'm big Thomas Jefferson fan on that, right? 
I'm rather fond of luck. It seems the harder I work, the more of it I, I seem to have. And, but luck is where preparation meets opportunity, True. right? And so if, if you don't do the prep work, the opportunity will present itself, but you won't be ready. And yeah. so you won't be lucky. And it's like people who got into crypto early. Oh, you were just lucky. <laughs> really? Yeah. No, I was told. And look, I'm, you know, I unfortunately, I was introduced to, to Bitcoin the same month as the Winklevoss twins. There's a book about them becoming multi-billionaires and, and I'm not, but because they got it faster. Part of it, I think, is they're younger. I'm, I'm old. And so I was kind of set in my ways. I, I came from the fiat world and, and I was skeptical and, and I had to do my diligence and, and, I, and I eventually got there. But here's the thing. That was in 2013. In 2014, I got it. And I wrote to my clients, I think you should, you should look at this. And I got hate, Alex. I got people saying, you're an idiot. We will fire you. Go back and do your job. I'm like, what? Now, I see the funny part is I wrote one paragraph in a 41-page letter. I used to write these really long letters. And people say, well, why do you write these letters? No one wants to read 41 pages. I said, it's not for them. It's for me. How do I know what I think if I can't read what I wrote? The writing was for me. It was a cathartic way of learning. And, and I learned more in writing those long letters because I learned about history. I learned about religion and politics and all these things that I would tie into investing. But I said, look, Bitcoin's an interesting special situation. The price was 500 bucks. The funny part is the next paragraph was about Saudi stocks. No one complained about those, which are more objectionable, given what we know now, than Bitcoin. But no one complained about that. They just complained about Bitcoin because they didn't understand it. They were afraid of it. And disruptive technologies always have that impact. People hated electricity. I mean, hated it. People hated the automobile. They hated air travel. My grandfather-in-law, my wife's grandfather, left a safe job at the train to go work for American Airlines. His parents were horrified. Like, no, you can't do that. That would be a, that'd be a terrible decision. You know, don't you know, because the, the airlines passed out pamphlets saying, don't you know, you'll die if you get on an airplane. Yeah. Like, what do you mean? Your body will cave in on itself if you go faster than a certain speed. Like, that's nonsense. I mean, that, that's, but that's what they believe. No, that's not what they, they actually were just afraid of losing their business. So they spread fear, uncertainty, and doubt. The same thing that the fiat crowd spews to people who want to adopt crypto. But it took me a while to, to convince people. Uh, one, one other funny part of the story is, so my son was graduating from Notre Dame in 15, early 15. And there's a movie again, predates, but called The Graduate. And it was in the 60s. And the guy's graduating from college and his uncle says one word, plastics, right? Get into plastics, which would have been a good thing in the 1960s. So I said to my son, one word, blockchain. So go out to San Francisco. He's wanted to live in San Francisco his whole life. Like since he was eight or nine years old, he was going on the internet, you know, how things work and technology. And he just, I want to go to San Francisco. I'm like, great. Go get a job at Coinbase. So he goes out, talks to Coinbase and he's like, yeah. I don't know, dad, maybe it'll be a big deal, but I'm just going to go to KPMG. It's safe. Gets me to San Francisco. Like, you're going to hate it. 
right? They're gonna make you sit on the square. And which he did, he quit after nine months without a job, which I think is a thing. Like people quit without, I'm like, no, no, you get another job, then you quit. No, no, I'm, I hate it, I'm out. So when Coinbase went public, he called me, I'm fine, dad, you're right. I should have gone to Coinbase, but you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm like, oh, do tell, I told you to work at, at Coinbase. It's like, yeah, but you didn't lever up the house and put all in Bitcoin. <laughs> that is that is fact because I was afraid. I was I was old school, and look, I've come a long way, and I'm I'm better now, and and look, no one's crying for me, and I'm I'm doing fine. But I I think it's interesting when you are taught one thing or one way to think, and when your livelihood depends on it. So again, back to your courageous decision. Being willing to step away from the trappings of, you know, modern society um, is, is a big deal because there's, there's the, uh, the line, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but the ability for someone to understand a new idea is inversely related to their dependence on their income, not understanding or something like that. Basically, if that new idea threatens your income, you will not understand it, right? Yeah. The bankers today, they get blockchain. They just don't want to hear about it because it's going to take away the $7 trillion that they skim from us every year. I actually, I had, I had the coolest experience. So I've been telling the story for years of how the Medicis, right? The benevolent Medicis uh, invented fractional reserve banking. And I always said, they, like Picasso, borrowed slash stole the idea from these monks. But I didn't actually know which monks. You know, were they French monks? Were they, you know, I didn't know. I actually learned that this past two weeks ago in Portugal. I learned that they were the Order of Christ, the Knights Templar. They invented fractional reserve banking, which is why all Da Vinci Code stuff, it's all real, right? It is the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. He, she, they had all the gold because they were the first people to take deposits while other people went out to you know wage war, and they found that some of them didn't come back. Like you know, we could lend this stuff out and earn interest on it, and so they invented that. The Medici's took it. The Rothschilds perfected it, and now we've been living under Rothschild rule forever. But it was interesting to me that, again, my livelihood was dependent on this other stuff not really being as disruptive as, as now I, I firmly believe that it is. True, true. Yeah, you see, Bitcoin is uh, quite disruptive, and I think it's the foundation of freedom that we need, because what from what I've seen in the last five years, it was just a downgoing spiral of shit hitting the fan over and over again. And I really think Bitcoin and unschooling is the base or alternative education is the baseline of freedom. Because I think if you skip all these centralized systems and programs and offerings and you just do it decentralized, you will go a long way but you in the end you you have the certainty that you're not mm, falling into a trap of one central authority and i see a lot of similarities between decentralized education and decentralized finance 
Oh, come on. I mean, look, we'll go down with the nasty politically charged word, slavery. Right? Yes. School, modern schooling, you know, ex, you know, current schooling is, is about slavery. Like, oh, I can't say that. Yeah, I, I can't. Right. I said it's to create factory workers and people who don't question authority. Right. And look, there's a crazy story in the United States. So we had free public universities for many, many years for free, right? You could go for free. And in the early 80s, the education minister or secretary of education said to the president on a live mic, he didn't know he was being recorded, but you know, he said, you know, we can't afford to have an educated proletariat. So we need to do away with these public universities which they did. And like, well, what do you mean you can't have an educated proletariat? Well, educated people, like truly educated people, people who question, who are curious, who are intellectually curious, won't just take something like the, the whole lockdown nonsense. We said you should do this, therefore you should do it. Well, it doesn't make any sense. If I, if I just think logically and, and factually, no, that's not what we said. We told you to do it. You have to do it. And the masses masked up. I mean, I, I, saw, I, I, I shouldn't make fun of this person, but I was in the grocery store the other day. And there's a mom and her daughter in masks. I'm like, no, right? You can't, you can't do that without not thinking. If, if, if you actually think, right? We've been dealing as a human species with, you know, viruses for millennia. And the surgical mask was not designed to prevent viral respiratory diseases. It was designed to stop surgeons from spewing stuff into open body cavities. That's what they're designed for. And that makes sense. I don't want anyone's spittle in my body if you're operating on me. So, okay, that makes sense. But it's not viruses, the body. It's amazing, right? I'm a biology guy. And what I love about biology is everything in the world is about biology. Complex adaptive systems, financial systems, virality of ideas, okay? Virality of, of communities. It, it's all about, about biology. And there's only two states in biology, growth and death. Prefer the former, don't like the latter. And so if you're not growing, you're dying. And if you're not learning, you're dying. And so this this... This nonsense of, hey, we said it, we the authority, whether it's the WEF or some other government or whoever, we say this and you should be happy. I'm like, no, I should not be happy. I, I should think about it. And there's a book, and I'm, I'm, I think the title of it, Alex, is, is Belief, but it, it might not be. But it talks about how humans form our beliefs. And we do it backwards. We are given our beliefs by the media, by our parents, by governments, by our friends, by people we trust. And then we reject all information that's counter to that belief and bring in all information that supports that belief. Well, that's backwards. We should take all the data in, think about it, form a belief, and then have it. But that's, that's not what we do. 
And so if you think about back to back to crypto and, and education, so for millennia, the world was run by the church. Well, why? Well, because the only way you could get your information was to show up on Sunday and listen to the authority tell you about stuff. So you were given your beliefs once a week and you went out and did your jobs as peasants and, and slaves and, and, you know, built these amazing structures. I saw this aqueduct, right? 2000 years old, no mortar, no, still standing in Segovia. I mean, mind boggling. Now there's a lot of slavery and a lot of, but, but still amazing. Great engineering, incredible. You can't get and build a house that'll last, you know, two decades, let alone, you know, two millennia. So the, um, oh shoot, where is I going with that story? Um, the history, ah, shoot, it'll come back to me, but, um, I can't remember where I was going, Alex. Don't worry. Doesn't matter. I, I don't know, but, uh, what that reminded and the development. Yeah. So if we think about, um, complex adaptive systems and how things change is innovation happens and we can choose to, to ignore it or we can choose to embrace it. And if we embrace change and we embrace new technologies that, that make the world better, we advance as a society. But if we, if we just accept these hierarchical structures that are designed to keep the, the, you know, the pyramid, right? We have the highest wealth and inequality in the history of mankind today. True story. The people at the top are the richest they've ever been. The people at the bottom, they're not the poorest they've ever been, but relative to the rich, the gap is the widest. It is true that we've raised more people out of abject poverty because of fossil fuels and a whole bunch of other things that are, that, that's amazing. But the gap is huge because of the way these systems have been created. And a lot of it has to do with education. And a lot of it has to do with this idea that we inculcate people with this inability or unwillingness to question authority. Like can't question the science. Like, well, no, science is questioning always, right? You're not, you're never done, right? Galileo questioned, Copernicus questioned, Newton questioned, right? Madame Curie, one of the great inventors of all time, questioned. That's the whole nature of science. Science is not absolute. It's, it's about questions. True. I think it's uh, Stockholm syndrome is widely spread, more than we think, maybe. And I think some people are even born with it. Like, yeah, hand me out one disease let it be Stockholm syndrome makes my life so much easier. And I think they, I don't know, maybe it's, it's contagious or I don't know, but I think the baseline is, or the main reason is found in uh, education, but, um, to have a look into our future, maybe, what do you think? How might Bitcoin influence our society, our freedom or our approach to freedom, our options to live more freely? Okay, now I remember where I was going because you asked that question before and, and it's perfect. So education and Bitcoin are inextricably linked in this regard, right? The way it works now, the education system 
prepares kids to be debt slaves. You go to work, you're paid in money that then is devalued, okay, through inflation, this thing that's supposed to be good for you. Why would a system that takes half of my purchasing power over a 30-year period be good for me? There's, there's in no planet is that a good idea, but that's what they've sold us. And, and it was an ingenious invention, right? And so from the, the Knights Templar and the Order of Christ through the Medicis to the Rothschilds, the big change was in 1607 with the formation of the Netherlands Central Bank by the Rothschild clan. And so here's a crazy stat. The Rothschild family, now it's a big family. There are a lot of Rothschilds. One family has the same wealth as the bottom three quarters of people in the world. Six billion, one family. It's crazy. Well, how? Because they invented a system that allows these private institutions, right? The Fed is neither federal nor has any reserves. It's a private institution owned by European families and some U.S. people, okay? Started with the Netherlands Central Bank, then half the Rothschilds went to the UK and set up the Bank of England. And then the same groups set up the Fed in 1913. From 1776 to 1913, a dollar, and why is it called a dollar in the United States? Well, because the Reichsdollar was in the Netherlands and we, because we were friendly with them, we took the word called the dollar, okay? It was worth a dollar from 1776 to 1913. A little fluctuation around wars, but it was worth a dollar because there's no inflation. 1913, we take this central bank idea, and now we can print money out of thin air. So if you have a million dollars on your table and I print a million dollars on my table, the value of that money just went down by half. That's what we did after the lockdowns, which I will argue the lockdowns were a creation to allow the central banks to double the money supply to devalue the currency, because that's how you get out of debt. When governments get too far indebted, and that's the history of every empire in the history of mankind. They all fail for the same reason, too much debt. And so the American empire is falling. And so you got to devalue the currency to get out of it. So since 1913, a dollar is now worth three cents. Well, why is that system good? And why do we tolerate it? Well, we tolerate it because we're slaves to it. You go to school, you get a job, you got this nice job and you're getting paid and you need the money to pay your rent. So they encourage you to buy a house. Okay, so you buy a house. Well, you don't really buy the house, do you? You borrow the money and you, instead of renting the house, you rent the money. Now the house can appreciate and you can make some equity, but at the end of the day, you're renting the money and you're paying a lot of interest to the bankers. Again, that's $7 trillion. And what it does is over time, that money then gets devalued out from under you so you're a slave. What Bitcoin does, here's an amazing thing. If I get paid a dollar today, tomorrow I could wake up and it could be worth 98 cents. And if this guy, Augustin Karstens from the BIS has his way, where they'll be able to change that at, at any time through programmable money, CBDCs, pure evil. I mean, the, the minute 47 of this big giant guy, I used to call him Jabba the Hutt, but he literally looks more like Kingpin from the Spider-Verse movie. What that guy is describing is a dystopian future none of us want, where the government can say, no, you didn't spend your money. It's not worth anything this week. So 
that system is broken, but it's not broken for everyone. It's only broken for the people that use it. The people at the top, it works really well. So they're stealing the wealth up to the top and the average person doesn't really feel it. It's like being boiled, like the frog in the pot, right? If you have the hot water, it jumps out. But if it's slowly turned up, it becomes paralyzed and can't jump out. And that's where we are. So Jimmy Song talks about this better than I do. And he's handsome and, and all this good stuff. And I love the cowboy hat. But Jimmy says, Bitcoin makes you no longer a slave. What does that mean? And again, it's a highly charged word. And people say, you can't say that word. I'm like, yes, I can. Because if you get paid in dollars, you're a slave because they can take your value away. With Bitcoin, you're no longer a slave because your money will appreciate over time because Bitcoin doesn't change. One Bitcoin is one Bitcoin, but we don't price Bitcoin in Bitcoin. We price Bitcoin in dollars or yen or euros or you know, bolivars or lira in Turkey. There's never been a bear market in Bitcoin. Not ever because the lira has gone straight down. In Venezuela, never a bear market in Bitcoin because the bolivar gone straight down. So Bitcoin is up 100%. In the last year. No, it's not. Bitcoin's the same. One Bitcoin's one Bitcoin. The dollar is down 50% in the last year because they printed so many of them three years ago. So that's the difference. Now, what happens, and this is what's really cool if I'm suddenly on a Bitcoin standard and I'm getting paid in this appreciating currency, this deflationary currency instead of an inflationary currency. I now have time to create. I have time to think. I have time to do art, to do my passion, to, to build something. Because I don't have to fight against the constant devaluation of my currency. So that's pretty cool. And again, coming back from this, this vacation, one of the things that's amazing, you go to a place like the Alhambra in Granada, Spain. Oh my God. I mean, carvings and beauty and, and just tile work and it's gone. All of that artistry and that craftsmanship is gone. Now people say, well, because all the slaves are gone. Well, okay. That's a little part of it, but also the desire to do that stuff is gone because you're a debt slave to your job, nine to five, get your pay. And that gets liberated one with the different educational system, right? An educational system that is more global, more worldly, more about questions rather than answers. There's a, there's a thing you should, you should read this. It's um, called Solitude and Leadership. It's written by William Derizowitz. And I think it's the best six pages ever written on the concept of leadership. And he basically talks about, you need to spend time in solitude like I said, to think about your thoughts. Like if I ask you or anybody else, what do you think about X? The first thing out of that person's mouth will be something they're parroting that they heard someone else say. Because they haven't actually spent the time to take in all the information and think about it. And so what do I really think about Ukraine? What do I, I mean, I hate this, right? You hear people say this about Ukraine or that about Ukraine. No, you're just telling me what you saw on television or what you heard the president say. Tell me what you really think about. Have you actually thought about this Zelensky guy? Have you actually thought about Putin? I saw this thing and, and I can't vouch for its 
validity because I don't speak Russian. But there, Putin was giving a speech a few weeks ago. And it was in Russian. And he was basically saying, we've seen this movie before. Everything that's happening in America today with the whole far left and the trans and the you know LBGTQ, all this kind of stuff, and getting rid of family values and people have a right to change. It's what the Bolsheviks did in 1913. Like, what? And I did some research. I'm like, holy crap, they did. They had the same platform. And if you take the 10 tenets of the Communist Manifesto and you read them, like eight of them apply to America today. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that can't be right. Well, I don't know. If I actually think about the data instead of listening to what people are saying, I would have to have a different view. And so I, people say, oh, you're a Putin lover. I'm like, I'm not. I, because I listen to a speech means I love him? No, that doesn't mean, it just means I listen to, he's a very intelligent person, right? He's a 3D chess player, really smart guy. I mean, he's found a way to stay in power longer than he's supposed to. So obviously a smart guy. Um, become a multi, multi-billionaire, 100 billionaire. Uh, smart guy. Now, you may not like him, but he's a smart guy. So when smart people talk, you should at least listen and you should at least listen to what they say and you should at least think about it. But what he was saying wasn't his opinion. He was just stating some facts that if you want to divide and conquer, here's a playbook. And we've seen it. And you can go back in history and the same playbook's been used in you know ancient times and antiquity. And Again, read about Rome. You'll find a whole bunch of similar themes about personal identity and personal freedoms and debt. Whoa, whoa, wait a second. Or the Ottoman Empire or the, you know, the, the Moors. It's, it's interesting. And, and part of it is we're humans. We're really not that complex. And you know, I, I, I do marvel, right? If you want to have a new idea, read old books. And the older, the better. Like I, on my desk over there, I have a saying, um, success, you know, failure changes for the better, success for the worst. From Seneca the Younger, from 2,200 years ago. That's not a new saying from some self-help guru, right? That's a guy 2,200 years ago saying, Absolutely. Like we have a saying in, in our business with every investment, we get richer or wiser, never both. Because when you make money, you don't think about it. You're like, oh, look how smart I am. I don't learn anything. When you lose money, who? What did I do wrong? I got to analyze it. I got to think about it. And we learn a ton. But when you make money, you, you just think, oh, look how smart I am. I'm, I'm so good. And it's the same thing here. When you're successful, you get overconfident and you set yourself up for failure. When you fail and you get back up, like what's not taught in, in our society, in our school system, back to unschooling, persistence, resilience, right? That failure is actually good. Here's the thing. Your kid comes home, four A's and a D. What does everybody do? <gasps> oh my gosh. We'll get you a tutor. We'll, we'll spend all your time on this. What's the right answer? Drop the class. You got four A's. Focus on those. You don't have to be good at everything. You're good at, you're really good at four things. Do that. 
do more of that. You don't have to spend all your time fixing the D, but we're so against failure. Um, I, I, uh, when we pick kids for our, our scholarship, one of the things that we look for is people who've failed. And I ask, I ask them all the time, what, what was your biggest failure? And most kids are like, oh, I, I, I don't study hard enough. I'm like, stop. Tell me when you failed. Tell me when you tried something and it didn't work. And, and the really good ones are like, oh, God, so many t- things I can tell you. But true failure, like I, I got so many stories and, you know, it's failures of judgment, failures of action, failures of reason. But, but at the end, the ability to get up and move forward. And look, before it was unpopular to talk about um, Will Smith, you know, before the slap, He's actually a pretty smart, interesting guy. Again, done really well, built a great business, built a lot of wealth. Um, and, and I heard him speak once and he had this great, fail fast, fail forward. Like just fail and, and, and learn. And, but that's not what our society teaches. Our society teaches no, fall in line, get your B, be happy, and you know get a little you know trophy oh personal pet peeve we have destroyed i think one of the most important things in the world which is competitiveness with participation trophies so i tell the story when my little guy went to play soccer he was four years old his team went oh and ten they didn't even sniff a win i mean they were horrible and they gave him a little medal and we got home and I took the medal and I put it in the trash. And my wife's like, what are you doing? I'm like, they don't deserve a medal. And my son's like, well, no, we were terrible. Because <laughs> he kept score. Because you don't want to lose. You want to win. And I think it's ridiculous. In Chapel Hill, where I live, the People's Republic, as I refer to it, the People's Republic of Chapel Hill, they don't keep score. Like, well, what are you talking about? That's the whole reason you play a game is to keep score. And winning is good, but losing is better because you learn. And I, when the, for me, the, the very heart and the principle, and again, linking it to crypto, yes, is, is this the thing for freedom? So breaking the, the shackles of the traditional education system that kind of prunes away intuition, initiative. Oh, you can't do something you want to do. You have to do what we tell you to do. Or you have to do this art project. My son came home and he got this terrible grade in science. I go, oh, you know, what happened? They had to make a poster. And teacher didn't like the colors he picked. Like, you're kidding me? That you, you graded your opinion of his color choice? Wrong. That's not science. You know, talk about the scientific method, do an experiment, you know, go outside and and walk on grass. I don't care, but made me crazy. And Bitcoin the same way is if we're shackled to the traditional banking system where there's this tax, right? Our money, it's not our money. If we put it in a bank, it's now the bank's money. And you saw this in, you know, the other island down, down off the coast, you know, in Cyprus, you woke up in 2012, you thought you had a dollar, you had 25 cents because they took the rest because of bad decisions they made with oligarchs and other stuff. But 
that system is what we all have been told is the right system. And so what those people will do is they'll label Bitcoin and decentralized systems as negative when they're actually super positive and accretive. And it is interesting in the last week, you've had Jay Clayton, right? The former head of the SEC come out and say, yeah, we really need to have an ETF so more people can get involved. And then we had Larry Fink, you know, largest asset manager in the world, uh, say, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to get this ETF thing done because people need it. And it's a great way to protect your money from devaluation of the currency. Wait a minute, you, you're part of it. You just said that out loud? And that's how bad the system is. If, if you can actually tell people how you're stealing from them and still do it, it's crazy, but we can opt out. And that's the cool part. True. Yeah, that's nice, actually, because um, my kid grew up with Bitcoin. He didn't have so much to do with fiat money because I, not like I've not been keeping him away from it, but there was no need for him. Of course, he knew like cash, how to use it and stuff, but he didn't never had a bank account or anything. And the first encounter with any kind of account was a Bitcoin wallet. And then a, yeah, and then a Lightning wallet. And now he was like, he's now into gaming. He needs to purchase shitty things on, on Fortnite and stuff. So he's like, yeah, mom, now I need a bank account. And I was like, no, dude, you know what you need? You need Bitcoin and a card that you can spend this with in fiat. Yeah. So I try to prevent him from even entering this shitty system. Oh, no, so look, I, I love it. I, I, I love it. I, I have not done quite as well. We, we did because of, of Fortnite, right? To the same thing. So I have, my son's <laughs> 12 years old. No, it's what? the same thing. Yeah. It's the same problem. 10-year-old boys, 11-year-old boys, 12-year-old boys, they play a lot of video games. It's awesome. Yeah. And, but they those video games have resisted crypto particularly bitcoin um and i get it right i mean they want their ecosystem to be closed epic games right down the street here in north carolina make a lot of money i mean a lot of money for a free game and and they're extracting it out of you know the banking system the fiat way so i get that but but you've done a better job than i have cuz i i i should have said nope you're not going to get a Bank of America account because you need to, you know, move into this newer. And and he does have a Bitcoin wallet and he does have a Lightning wallet. But I I think what's really interesting to me is is the next gen. So I have three grandkids, uh, four, two, and zero. And my youngest grandchild, um, I say, you know, she will never have one of these. She will never have a leather wallet. And she will never use paper money, ever. Think about that. She's zero years old. She will never use paper money. That's crazy. That's crazy. And yeah. that's not, you know, we're talking 10, 12 years from now, but she'll never, and she will not have a leather wallet. The concept of a leather wallet will be like, well, why, why would you carry something around? It, it's, it's all right here. And, you know, or God forbid, you know, embedded in your hand. Yeah, don't. Um, which I don't <laughs> want that either. In fact, I, I'm. It's funny because my wife, you know, we're we're like the perfect match. We're total opposites, and we attract. And and she's a reader. 
Like she's read more books this year than I've read my whole life. Not exaggerating. And she's always on me to read. And, and I, you know, on this vacation, I'm fine. I'm going to read a book. And I read Snow Crash. Holy moly. If you haven't read it, you have to read it. It is absolutely unbelievable. And to think that this person coined the term metaverse and wrote a book about, but all the things that are happening in real time are in the book. I mean, like just yesterday, I saw on Twitter a picture of 5,000 kids at a sports stadium doing a vigil right? Organized religion vigil. Like that's not what those kids want to be doing. They are being just like the raft in an L Bob Rife in snow crash. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you know, organized religion, the opiate of the masses, the whole thing. And look, I'm, I'm a good Catholic boy and I've been inculcated like everybody else. But when I stop and think about it, Right for myself, I'm like, well, well, wait a second. December 25th was the day of the winter solstice. It wasn't really a birthday. Um, why did you make it? Okay, so and you go back in time and you look at the history and you're like, oh, I get it. You wanted more control of the populace so you could channel the wealth to the top. Okay, so, but the concepts of, um how we as society members think about one, how we educate our kids to be open to critical thinking, problem solving, um, you know, taking initiative, being willing to fail, all those things. I think our part and parcel with this world of digital assets, which takes the hierarchy, and if you think about the education hierarchy and the financial hierarchy, they're kind of one and the same. They're just extensions of the church hierarchy. And the, and, and the story I was telling before, the church monopoly got busted by the printing press. Because the printing press basically said, oh, wait, now I can give books to people. I can make them educated. I can teach them to read and write and all that good stuff. But, but it busted the monopoly. So then who took over? Government. Governments took over. And it was a whole separation of church and state thing. And the governments, either by state-owned media, like China or Russia, and state-influenced media, like America and everywhere else, it's all the same, just levels of control. but you're giving opinions to people. Well, now we go from that monopoly being busted by the internet, right? I mean, in the old days, if you and I wanted to talk halfway around the world, it would charge $3 a minute for AT&T or Verizon or whatever. And it would be no video and, and you know bad audio. And we had no choice. It was a monopoly. Now for free, we're communicating in live HD, which I would say, I wish it was still a little more fuzzy because I'd look better. Um, but I, I think what's, what's amazing about, about where we are now is the internet busted the monopoly of media. The blockchains bust the monopoly of finance. 
And that 800-year monopoly of the Medicis, the Rothschilds, the Morgans, it's going away. And not tomorrow. I mean, it's going to take time and they're going to fight back and, and all that. But what we need is an army. And I, I choose that term uh, intentionally. We need an army of kids, because kids are the future, that are trained to think critically, question authority, be innovative, be resourceful, be resilient, not be rule followers, not be grade grubbers, not be into intellectual without curiosity, not to you know, do what they're told as opposed to question why should I do that? Is it is it accretive? And again, I don't I don't want to have an army of, of rebels. What I want to have is an army of of intelligent, thoughtful, motivated, hungry, visionary people who want to build a better future. And and what drives me crazy about the current system is the inculcation of the idea. And I'll go down to you know the one little rabbit hole quickly is, is this whole climate change thing. Yes. It's, yeah. just, it's just silly. I mean, I don't want to have an argument with my 12-year-old over climate change because he's been told that we're destroying the, the planet. Like, no, no, we're not. I mean, climate change is, is a myth. Climate impact, of course there's climate impact, but carbon dioxide is the it's the seed of life. Without carbon dioxide, there is no life. So this whole thing that carbon somehow makes us worse off, it's just silly. And, and here's the thing that you don't hear anybody talk about this. This is interesting. So up until 2020, for 11 years, temperatures were rising. Why were temperatures rising? Well, because there was more solar activity. So the sun, which is this great thermonuclear you know, processor, uh, puts off heat and radiation. And it has cycles. And when the cycles are high, temperatures rise. When the cycles are low, temperatures get low. When temperatures are low, what happens? We get lots of viruses. What do you mean, Mark? Well, where do viruses? Viruses come from outer space. They literally come from outer space. They fought in the saw and snow crash, and they come from outer space. And if there's a lot of radiation, they get burned up. And we don't have pandemics. We don't have problems. When there's what's called a grand solar minimum, which we had in 1360, and we had the plague, you get bad viruses, like super bad viruses. And then you had bad hygiene and all kinds of bad other stuff. But in 2020, there was a grand solar minimum, second to the, the big one in 1360. And so not surprisingly, we had uh, a pandemic. And it was going to start in the place where the ozone is the thinnest. And that's exactly where it started, the mountainous region of China. It wasn't in a lab. Long story short, since 2020, the temperature of the earth is falling again because yeah, can tell we that. have less solar activity. They're like, no, oh, that's it's ridiculous. Like you can actually go to the NOAA website, National Oceanic Association, and they plot it every day and you can see it. And the funniest one is from, from the point, remember when, when cases of COVID started to fall off a cliff and they go, oh, it's because of the vaccine. Mm -mm. It's because of solar activity, because the sunspots were coming back up and they were killing off the virus. And 
I'm like, well, no, that's not right. I'm like, well, no, it is right, right? If I get a cold today, a common cold, it's possible that it is a remnant, a mutation of the Spanish flu. What are you talking about? Starts as a flu, then it mutates because it wants to stay alive, adapt and survive. And it comes a little less lethal and a little more virulent, a little more uh, contagious. Eventually it becomes the common cold, which is super contagious and doesn't really harm you. It's just seven days of feeling yuck. Um, but every virus goes through that same process. And that's what, you know, the flu virus that they labeled COVID is. It's just a flu. And, and yet we're inculcating kids with these, these wrong ideas to populate a narrative that supports, you know, industrialized complex and, and all this good stuff. And look, I'm a beneficiary of it in that wealthy people are my clients. And so having people who, who become wealthy is, is probably good for our business. But at the end of the day, um, I resist this, this idea that we should tell our kids nonsense to get them to believe a certain way. It just doesn't make sense to me. But True. I like that, actually, because uh, here on the Canary Islands, it has been the longest winter I ever experienced here. And with all these, uh, it's, it's record heat. It is not. It is not even close to any kind of record heat. And everyone is telling me, oh, you have a heat wave over there. No, actually, we don't. It's a little hot, but this is how I mean, it's hot. all year. Because if you're close to the equator, it's going to be hot. Uh, I, I was just in, in Seville, Spain. It was 100 degrees. Yeah, it happens. And it's going to be 100 degrees here in North Carolina. Okay. But not, and one of my favorite things is the, this whole thing about, you know, climate change, it's changing weather patterns, and there's more hurricanes. Like, but the hurricane numbers are going down. Well, they went up four years ago. Right. Because yeah. there was a cyclical change in weather patterns, and, and that happens. But, but you, you, Alex Epstein, love the guy. So he wrote this great book, you know, Fossil Future. And everybody's all up in arms. Oh, fossil fuels are bad and we all need electric cars. I'm like, right, but your electric cars run on fossil fuels because all the stuff to make them is with fossil fuels. And all of progress in history is from fossil fuels. All of it, right? I mean, in terms of it doesn't take as many people to do a job because in every barrel of oil, there's 40 human years of labor. Just think about Crazy. it. Now, it would be way better if we used nuclear, just way better, like off the charts better. And if we did fusion, which we haven't figured out how to control yet, but eventually we, we might. But, but nuclear power would be way better. So instead of fighting wars over oil, we should build more nuclear power plants. But that's a story for another day. But ultimately, this, this idea that, that misinformation can get propagated so quickly in the digital age to help, again, the people at the top own the businesses. Like, I don't know if you remember this. Remember the anthrax scare way back when? There was this, there was this scare, and again, you're, you're pretty young, but I'm <laughs> old. But so anthrax was, was this thing, and uh, everyone was afraid of it, and some got mailed to someone in D.C. and all this stuff. So they, they came out with this drug called Cipro, 
and everyone was going to have to stock up on Cipro because everyone's worried about anthrax and, you know, it's going to be this new terrorist thing. Well, it turned out there were three drugs that you could have picked, but Cipro was made by the company that the Secretary of Defense was the chairman of. Really? I mean, total conflict of interest. And when, when Iraq got invaded and all the construction was being done, it just turned out that Halliburton was owned by the vice president. I mean, oh, it was in a blind trust. Well, right, but he got it all back when he left office. So, you know, still corruption. But it's, it's hard because history is written by the winners. And, sure. you know, we read the history then and, and we're, oh, all these great stories of all this. I'm like, well, but what about the other side? And what about the people who didn't win? Let's, let's hear their side. And it's one of the benefits of, of learning a lot of history. And I said, if you want to have a new idea, read old books. If we, yeah, stress uh, or focus a, a little bit more on our kids instead of co-parenting with the state. <laughs> ah, oh man, I love that. That is, that is such a great time. I'm going to borrow it. Um, it's absolutely true. And look, the, I'm going to make some people angry. So there's this myth in the U.S. about the super mom, right? Oh, I'm doing it all. I'm raising my kids. I'm doing my job. No, no. You're going to work and that's great. And I applaud that. But someone else is raising your kids, daycare worker, mom, grand, you know, grandparent, whoever it is. You're not there. We haven't figured out how to be two places at one time. And Look, it's a choice I make. I go to the office every day. My, my son's not here, so I'm not parenting. No, I try when I get home and I try to engage and on the weekends. But, but at the end of the day, I'm not raising him. I mean, I'm his parent and his role model, and I try to impart wisdom and, and teach him things. But today he's learning how to sail, not from me, but from the camp that he's at. And that's awesome. But taking back control of of parenting and education, particularly the education piece. And again, I haven't had the courage to do it. I've talked about it, but I haven't, haven't had the courage to do it. Um, and so I really do applaud people who do. And, you know, homeschooling has this, this negative connotation and, oh, it's just the crazy people. No, it's one, people who understand it takes a commitment to do a job well. Okay, so that's first. Second, um, their sacrifice, right? My wife stayed home with our first two and uh, that was a choice we made. And we went to one income and, you know, I had credit card bills and I, you know, use one credit card to pay off the other credit card. And it's what we did. We, we got by later in life. You know, when we thought we we're empty nesters, she was working and the other guy comes along. And part of the reason we were in Spain, uh, was because she was working, when when he came along and and she wanted to stay working she worked for a not-for-profit called meals on wheels and uh long story short, she had a babysitter and so the babysitter raised our son and she spoke solamente espanol since he was five weeks old so he's bilingual now we're not in fact i'll tell you one funny story about that so i'm not bilingual and and so to help him with his homework i use google translate and just maybe three years ago we're talking one night and I'm helping with homework. I'm, and I, I say, okay, for dinner, we had mashed potatoes and peas. And I look at Google Translate, how do you say it? And he says it. And I say, when I grow up, I want to be a fireman. And he says, no, no, dad. 
when I grew up, I want your job. I want to be the head of Morton Creek. I'm like, okay, I, I like that. Cool. Okay, here's what we try to buy things today that people are going to want to buy in the future. So what would you buy? Without skipping a beat, so computers with holograms. Like, okay, I'm done. I'm retired. You're the boss. I, where did that come from? Like I saw it on one of my television shows. I thought it was cool. And I think it'd be a big deal. Like, oh my God. And again, from the mouths of babes, but he wasn't polluted to say, well, that's not even possible. He's like, this is a cool idea. I think it's the future. Let, let's do it. And it's why all innovation comes from young people. All of it, right? Because they don't know what they don't know. And again, before it was politically unpopular to talk about Bill Cosby, you know, famous comedian, did bad stuff. Um, and I don't want to celebrate him, but, but he had a funny line when I was growing up that he said there was this kid and he could ride his bike anywhere. He could ride up the swing set, across the top, down the other side, on top of fences. He could do 360s, six inches off the ground. He never fell. Alex, you know when the first time he fell is? When some adult told him about gravity. Yeah. They don't know what they don't know. And so they have this wonder and this, this, and if you think about Mark Andreessen was 19 when he invented the browser and Sergey and Larry were in their twenties and all these amazing things that now have been maybe perverted to be not so amazing. Zuck, I mean, Gates, all of these guys were young. And I mean, guys, guys and gals, but young, innovative, thoughtful, but not polluted by not knowing what they don't know. Now, later in life, they become part of the organization and, and influenced by, by the bad stuff. But it's that wonder that we want to instill in our kids. It's that um, ability to, to have to problem solve, right? I mean, you know, trying to figure out whatever it is, how to, you know, rig a boat or how to, you know, filter drinking water when you're on a hiking trip or, you know, how to make a comfortable bed or a, sh a shelter. I mean, those are, those are the things that, that get to the creativity and that inherent um, sense of wonder in, in all of us that gets beat out of us in the traditional education system. True. True. That's a shame. And it's so much fun. I love uh, spending time in the wilderness and just uh, having nothing with me, just a dog, the kid, camping, like sleeping bags. And then, uh, yeah, just going it's with the, the flow. It's yeah. the best. It's Definitely. the best. Definitely. Well, yeah. And there's a, there's a communal, you know, communing with nature part of it that, that's real. And uh, we are always going to be more creative more insightful, more inspired when we get away from the busyness. I, I, I draw a picture from, for the kids when, when I talk about this. So we send them as one of their experiential learnings uh, before they come to college. So in their, between senior year and freshman year, we send them for eight weeks into the wilderness on an outward bound excursion. And it's hard, right? I mean, you got, you know, no toilet paper. I mean, it's, it's hard. And, and they come back and like, man, this, this little room with dorm room seems like the Taj Mahal seems like, you know, the most, or the uh, risk Carlton, but more importantly, what they, what they learn is what they're capable of. And it's that 
having to there, if you think about a circle, okay, the bottom of the circle is that spark that we all have inside us, whatever our passion is, just a little spark. But if that circle is filled up with Facebook and Instagram and homework and parents and friends, what's missing is oxygen. And so when you strip all that stuff out and you go out into the wilderness and we put them in these hard, difficult situations, that spark starts to grow and it becomes a flame and, and they discover their passion. But the last thing I'll leave you with is the other thing that, that happens is we had this, this one young man and he, he got exposed to hunger. Like he had never known hunger in his whole life, and, but he saw this place that he went, these kids who were hungry. It's one of my, again, personal pet peeves. In America, we spend $20 billion a year on weight loss. And yet there are tens of millions of kids that go to bed hungry every night. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. It's not a question of calories. We have plenty of calories. We just don't have a right way to distribute it. And, and that's crazy. So we need to solve that. But more importantly is he came back and he said, you know, I realized it's not just feeding one kid one day. We have to ask the question, why does hunger exist, right? Why do we have tens of millions of kids go to bed hungry every night in the United States? So for me, and this is a Dreswitz thing, our whole society is built around answers. Our society should be built around questions. Asking good questions is way more important than having, the, having all the answers. And so any system of education or unschooling that takes us away from this, I already know it all and I can't know anymore, and gets us into the, I need to ask why, I need to ask what, I need to ask how, I need to you know, engage is, is a win. So questions beat answers. True. And especially uh, what came into my mind uh, when you said it, it's like we have chat GPT. We need the, we need the correct questions because the answers are already there. That's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Well, Hey, thanks for inviting me. Really enjoyed the conversation. I hope we, we get to do it again sometime. And uh, nice. Thank you so, so much. Really. All right. Awesome. Aber wir haben da also Bescheid jetzt, ne? Und dann fragt, das war so, das war so krass. Der Chef, der hat so eine andere Leute, nur man sieht sich halt, und dann verschwinden die Leute nacheinander. Aber guck mal, das eine bei den anderen, bei den anderen.